Well, good morning. It's so good to see all of you here with us this morning. Uh, welcome to Fusion City Church. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name's Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. And if this is your first time hanging out with us, we want to say a special welcome to you. We know that it takes a lot of courage to walk into a place for the very first time and not know anybody. So we're really glad that you chose to, to come and give Fusion City Church the opportunity to to, to, to meet you and to get to know you. Uh, we really like new people around here. We get pretty excited when new people show up. So much, in fact, uh, we'd like to give you a gift just for showing up for the first or second time. And so um, how you get that gift is if you'll take just a, a few minutes of your time while you're with us here today to fill out the bottom portion of the program that you got when you came in. Uh, we call that a connection card. If you'll take your connection card to the hub just inside the doors as you came in, we have a gift there for you. Again, just our way of saying thanks for for hanging out, man. We're really, really glad that you decided to come and spend some time with us today. Uh, I want to tell you a story. Uh, I was a much, much younger man at the time. Uh, about 18 years ago, I was 20. Uh, if you can do math, you can figure out my age now. It's not real complicated math problems. We try to keep it simple here at Fusion because we know y'all. Um, and so... Uh, <laughs> At about age 20, uh, I and, and a buddy of mine who were in the Marine Corps at the time made the decision, being stationed in Pensacola, Florida, to drive over to New Orleans and check out Mardi Gras. Uh, that was our deal. Again, 20-year-old Marines, we, we decided to take the trip. Um, and so we got there, finding a place to park, very difficult as Mardi Gras. You can imagine that, uh, that New Orleans, very, very busy time. Uh, during that particular part of the year, that is their, their biggest celebration of the year. As just all cars on the table, it's a celebration in, in New Orleans all the time, uh, just a little more specifically at, at Mardi Gras. Uh, and so we were there, uh, had a difficult time finding a place to park. We finally found this place. Uh, it was like 20 or 30 bucks to park. This stupid parking uh, thing that we had to pay. So we, we parked the car and we proceeded to go and, and enjoy the festivities that Mardi Gras has to offer the parades and some of the other things. Uh, so we, we, we went, we did, we did the Mardi Gras thing, we're hanging out, we're having a great time. Uh, and it's getting kind of late in the night, it's probably 12.30, 1 a.m. We, we've been to the parades, we've gotten the beads, we've met the people, we've sang the songs, we've rejoiced, we've done all the things that you do in Mardi Gras. And uh, so, like, because it was so expensive to park, because we were Marines that didn't have a lot of money, and because we spent what little money that we had doing the things that you do at Mardi Gras, so we were, we were kind of out of money uh, and, in, and in no condition to drive anywhere, decided that, that we would just sleep in the car. Like this is like the, the car is now going to double as our hotel room for the night. We'll just sleep in the car. We'll wake up in the morning, and we'll, we'll drive back to the base. We'll be there for work on Monday morning like good Marines do. That's, that's, that was our plan. Except for the fact we couldn't find my car. Um, now, a couple of things that you need to consider. All of the roads in New Orleans look the same, especially when there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people all crammed into one small area. We couldn't, so we, at about 1 a.m. in the morning, we are frantically trying to find my car. One, because we need to sleep, and two, because I need to find my car. It's my car. It's like, this is the only manner that we have to, to, to get transportation back to the base. And so um, as the search goes on hour after hour after hour after road after road after road, my buddy thinks it's over here. I think it's over there. We can't find it. You can't ask anybody because, like, where's my, like, who do you ask where your car is? Like, we, we couldn't even give them enough information 
to tell them what we were looking. We didn't even know what building we were looking for or what parking lot we were trying to find. We just know that we had parked somewhere. So we scour the city frantic, panicked, overwhelmed, a little bit inebriated, and trying to find my car. I was 20 then. Uh, I was still building my testimony, right? So I have stories like that. It's all like, uh, much, much different then than now. Right? I'm a little more mature. But anyway, couldn't, we couldn't find it. We're, we were all just completely overwhelmed in the situation. Like, what are we going to do? And this was before the days of GPS. Now we got these really cool things on our phone. You say, I parked here. You go walk around, do whatever you want. Your phone will tell you how to find your car. This was 18 years ago. That technology did not exist. We were stuck and completely freaked out. Now, I tell you that story because I'm guessing that you could probably relate to this idea of not being able to find your vehicle that is one, your transportation, two, the place that you plan to sleep for the night, and, and nothing. Helpless. Hopeless. We, we couldn't find help anywhere. Jesus' disciples found themselves on the horizon of a very similar situation. They didn't lose a car because <clears throat> those didn't exist. But Jesus began to have conversations with them about eternity and then about the events that were getting ready to take place in his life. And Jesus told them that he was going to be arrested, that he was going to be led away, that he was going to be killed, and that he was no longer going to be with them. And it's in this series of events that are about to happen that Jesus sits his disciples down and he tries to, to reassure them about the things that are to come. And he said this, John chapter 14, if you have your Bibles. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 14. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. This was, a, this was an affirmation from Jesus. Hey, you don't have to worry. Don't, don't feel panicked. Don't feel overwhelmed. Don't be alarmed. And here's why. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And at this point, Thomas is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Thomas, ever the realist, this Thomas. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus replies, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, for all of my life, when I've read this particular passage where Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms and I go there to prepare a place for you so that where I am there you may be also. For all of my life, I've, I've, I've read and understood this in one way, but as I, was, as I was preparing for this message, I found a commentator on this text that 
that, that proposed a different way of interpreting this text. And this is what he said. He said that the going was the preparation. That, that the, the fact that Jesus would go to the cross and that he would go to heaven, that he would ascend into heaven, that this was the preparation. That it wasn't that Jesus was in the construction business in heaven, that he went away so that he could begin the construction of building the place for us to come. Now, I don't know about you, but when I, again, for all my life as I've read this, I kind of had this picture in my head of kind of like a little heaven B&B, right? A little bed and breakfast in heaven. And Jesus is up there ironing the sheets, right? Pressing everything out, getting it all pretty for those of us that are going to go to heaven one day. Jesus is up there preparing my room for me. Does that make you feel good? But, but here's what the commentator, he said, no, 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 no. It's not that Jesus was going to, to do the work of preparation in heaven, but the fact that he would go, that he would go to the cross and that he would go to the right hand of his father, that this was the preparation for us, that he was making the way for us to go. Therefore, when he said, the way that I go is the same way that you, you know the way because I am the way. Thomas Akempis, uh, a, a very uh, older older even predating the Reformation, which we've been talking about for the last several weeks. Thomas Akempis said it this way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which thou shouldest pursue. The truth which thou shouldest believe, the life which thou shouldest hope for. You see, Jesus is the only connecting peace between us and God. For the last several weeks, we've been in this series called Solas. And we've been looking at the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. These five key principles that inform our thought as Protestants, as those, again, falling under this, this banner of Protestantism. In, under the, the Christian church, there are two primary schools of thought. There is the, the, the Catholic and then the Protestants kind of fall under this banner of Christendom altogether. But on the Protestant side of things where we fall are, are these five key principles that we've talked about for the last several weeks. And all of them, we've said, are an alone or an only. So it is to the glory of God alone, soli deo gloria. We talked about that in week one. In week two, we looked at the authority of Scripture and sola scriptura, Scripture alone. Week three, uh, Cameron came and talked to us about uh, sola gratia, by grace alone. Last week, we looked at sola fide, by faith alone. And today we'll talk about solas Christus through Christ alone. And though all of these stand alone, it is in fact the, the Christ alone and Christ only that unifies all the rest of the solas. Jesus is the interpretive key of Scripture. As we read through Scripture, all of Scripture points to the person and work of Christ. Jesus is the gift that is offered by God's grace. And Jesus is the object of our justifying faith. Faith without an object is empty. Our faith requires an object. And if we are to be justified by faith alone, then Christ is the object of that faith. And Jesus' work 
was accomplished all to and for the glory of God. Now it has been said that the whole division between the Protestant or between the reformers and the Roman Catholic Church was, was this one little word, and. The, the, the reformers believed that it were, it were these principles alone and them only, that it was Christ only, Christ alone and nothing else. It, it was this, this idea of the Roman Catholic Church that it required more than Christ or, or something in addition to Christ. They didn't deny the work of Christ, but they added to what Christ had done other means by which the, the sinner or the believer was made right before God. But as the reformers came along and appealed to the authority of Scripture, what they found to be true is this, that it is, it is Jesus and, and nothing. It is Jesus alone. It is Christ only that saves. He is the only way, truth, and life. And again, this was the major point of contrast between the Reformers and the Catholic Church. From their perspective, the Reformers, that is, and from mine, the Catholic Church had placed itself into a position that supplanted the truth of Christ alone. They had supplanted Jesus as, from his role as the only way, truth, and life that men would come to the Father. And they did this through the practice of, of sacraments. Now, the sacraments in the, the Catholic Church are these additional practices, these outward expressions of things that the Catholic Church would deem that necessary in order for one to be made right with God. And so through all of these extra practices, so once, even once receiving Christ as Savior, the believer would then have to offer things like confession, uh, penance, all of these other additional sacraments other than believing and trusting in by faith Christ alone. This was the major point of contention between the Reformers and the Catholic Church. Because what this did is it placed on the church the responsibility of deeming whether one was guilty or innocent as they stood before God, which the church was never designed or intended to do so, according to Scripture. Luther, again, appealing to the Scriptures, saw this as wrong as he, he created and then nailed to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany, these truths. He appealed to scriptures like Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, which says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's hang there for just a moment. There is no other means to salvation, no other process by which men might be saved other than Jesus. There were no other options. By show of hands, how many of you, like me, grew up in a house that was eat it or go hungry? Show of hands. Good. How many of you do that to your children now? Eat it or you can just go hungry. See, not as many hands. We've changed a little, haven't we? Uh, it's still true in the Duncan house. It's, it's still true for my kids. Ha All right, by show of hands again. How many of you have ever shed tears at dinner? Show of hands. Because you didn't want to eat it 
but mom and dad made you, right? No other options. Eat it or starve. It, it isn't, isn't that what Luke said in Acts chapter 4? There is no other name. There is no other path to salvation. No other name under heaven given to men by which they might be saved. It is Jesus or starve. It is Jesus only. It is Jesus and nothing else. It is him and him only. Paul echoed the same sentiment. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Paul said, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God, the one God, and men, the man, Christ Jesus. See, this term mediator here is, is central to our understanding of Christ's role in our connection to our heavenly father, God. It is Christ and only Christ that stands in the gap between us and God's wrath. It is Christ and him alone. That is the awareness for us that apart from Christ, nothing satisfies God's holy justice. God is perfectly just. We talked about this, uh, honestly, throughout the whole series that we've been talking together. God is just. Sin does not go unrecognized or ignored, and it doesn't go unpunished. And we talked a lot last week about how Jesus took our place, and it is Christ and Christ alone. He is both the only means and his death the only sufficient sacrifice to reconcile sinful man with a holy God. Even an eternity in hell can't do what Christ's sacrifice does. That was, that was pretty profound for me again in, in preparing for this. Because here's, here's this thought that I think we might maybe inadvertently entertain. Is that if, if all of my sin is laid out on a scale of needing to be balanced by God's wrath, that, that I have to be punished for all the sin that I have committed, that, that at some point, right, once, once let's say we, we enter into eternity separated from God. We're not in heaven. We're in this other place called hell. And in hell that is our punishment for all of the sin, right? So at some point you would believe, it seems to make logical sense that at some point after I've suffered enough and been punished enough that eventually I will have been punished enough to cover all the weight of my sin. And at that point, no longer having to need or needing to be punished for my sin, then I get to go to heaven, but that's not true. Hell is an eternal condition. It is an eternal place. Because even an eternity in hell cannot do for us what Christ's death has done. It is Christ and Christ alone, his sacrifice that covers. It is the only sufficient means by which sinful man is made right with a holy God. That's why hell is eternal. Hell is absent of Christ. 
There is no access to Christ in hell. And because there is no access to Christ, there is no access to salvation. For there is one name and one name alone under heaven given unto men by which they might be saved. And it is Christ Jesus and him alone. Yeah, we can clap for that. If our endurement of eternal punishment cannot supplant Christ, if our eternity in hell cannot do what Christ has done, then why in the world would we think that anything that we could come up with by self-effort or anything that could be issued to us by the church or its officials could do it? It is Christ and him alone. It is Jesus and nothing else that saves. It is not Jesus and anything. It is him alone. So it's with this this view in mind that, that Luther developed his theses. That if there is nothing other than Christ that can save, then then why in the world would we entrust our guilt or innocent or the declaration thereof to the church, to the Pope, to the the church officials? That the church has nothing to offer that Christ has not already offered other than communion with and fellow, or at least as it pertains to salvation. Let me be clear. The church has a lot to offer for us. I'm a big fan of the local church. The church has a lot to offer, but the local church can't save you. It is Jesus and him only that saves. So, as I, again, preparing for this, for this whole series, I, I was aware of this 95 theses that, that, that Martin Luther nailed to the, the church door there in Wittenberg, Germany in 1517. I, I, was, I was aware of all of that. What I didn't know was that Luther at a later date went back and expounded on each of the 95 theses. He went back and, and further explored his own writings and then sent this to the powers that be. And in reference to one of his theses, he said this about Christ and Christ alone. He said, Christ is our peace, but only through faith. But if anyone does not believe this word, even though he be pardoned a million times by the Pope himself, even though he confessed, confessed before the whole world, He shall never know inner peace. This peace, therefore, is that sweetest power for which from the depth of our hearts we ought to give the greatest thanks to God who has given such power to men. That power, which is the only consolation for sin and for wretched consciences, If only men will believe that which Christ has promised is true. Here was his point. The Pope can't forgive you. Priests can't forgive you. Even you can't forgive you. It is only the forgiveness that is offered by Christ that gives us any confidence in our standing before God. It is Christ and him alone that can declare us righteous by his act of sacrifice on the cross. It is Christ 
and nothing else. There's a, uh, it's a pretty familiar for those of us in the, the, the professional religious world. And for those of us that have, might have been in church for, for quite some time, there's a pretty, pretty common or widely accepted method of evangelism. Evangelism being uh, that, that process that we, we share the gospel with somebody else that, that doesn't know the gospel. So as, as we share the gospel, uh, churches throughout the ages have, have created uh, tools and helpful questions that we can ask in order to make that process easier. And one of the most widely accepted great questions to begin a conversation with an unbeliever is, is this question. If you were to die today and God asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? If you were to stand before God and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Now, see, I, I done gone and gave you all the answer. But before today, and before the last several minutes that we've spent together this morning, what, what would your answer have been? See, here, here's my experience. Most of the time, when I talk to someone about their relationship with Jesus, do you want to know what they talk to me about? They talk to me about church attendance. They talk to me about how much time they spend at church or how much they give or how often they serve or whatever they do. Here's what I find interesting. That the very thing, the very thing that the Roman Catholic Church was impressing upon believers in the 15th and 16th century that the reformers saw as wrong and incorrect, that the church has no role in your salvation is the very thing that believers today will impress upon the church in that odd bit of irony. That the very thing that the reformers fought to change is the very thing to which we have returned as the modern day church. Well, we've made it very much about what we do at church and how often we're at church and how much we give at church and how often we serve at church. So if you were to have died to, to, today, before today, if you'd have died yesterday, before you heard the Jesus and nothing message, would you have told God about your connect group attendance or about your giving record or about which volunteer team you're on or about which pastors you know? You see, none of those things have the power to save. It is Jesus and Jesus only. It is Jesus and nothing. Anything that comes after the word and in that sentence is a works-based righteousness. Anything that comes, if it is Jesus and anything else, then it is void of Jesus. It can't be Jesus and anything else. It has to be Christ and Christ alone. So, so if you could be honest with yourself this morning, would, would you answer this question? If you were to die today and stand before God 
to what are you going to point as the reason that God should let you into his heaven? It is my hope and my prayer that we will learn, that we will embrace, and we will cling to Jesus and him only. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning as we approach this topic, Father, of the means by which we are made right with you. God, would you renew the source of joy for our salvation, and that is your son Jesus and him alone. God, would you make us ever mindful that there is nothing on this side of eternity that can guarantee or promise that we will stand before you in eternity. God, it is your son, Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, and those, his work alone. Father, that guarantees our eternity with you. God, may this not be the reason that we believe we are saved, but it may it be the reason which we do the things that bring honor and glory to your name. God, might we live in response to the gospel. Father, we seek not to earn salvation, but we live lives that honor you because we've already been given it through Jesus, your son. So Father, would you help, help us, God, to live our lives this week with that in view. And for all the weeks to come, God, may we, do, may we desire nothing more than to bring honor and glory to your name. We're thankful for your son. We're thankful that it is he and he alone that saves. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.